Hi, I'm Craig Turner, host of the Founders for Good podcast. I've spent years working in the tech for good space, and in that time I've had the privilege of interviewing inspiring impact founders, and I want to share those conversations with you. Why? Because these are the people leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues, from climate to homelessness to health to education and much more. In these conversations, I dig into why these issues exist, possible solutions, how the founder and their business is approaching the problem, and their best kept secrets on how to build a for good company. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Elena Rueda is the CEO and co-founder of Dharma Health. 900 million people around the world use contraception, yet 80% of women report experience side effects that decrease the quality of life. And on average, women try four different contraceptive methods before finding the right fit. Pretty shocking, right? Elena explains what the lack of data and research in this field, combined with the pressures on the NHS, results in a very poor patient experience and can lead to serious side effects in women, including depression, blood clots and heavy bleeding. Dharma Health are fixing this broken system by applying personalised and precision medicine to contraceptive health. Their screening test identifies patient biomarkers and personal preferences to enable better decision-making between patient and clinician. They also conduct genetic research studies to better understand how different genes react to different contraceptive methods. Hey, Elena. Thanks for coming on the show. How are you? Good morning, Craig. I'm doing well. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good. Thanks. Excited for this chat. Yes. Um, and yeah, I guess today we're talking about Dharma Health, the the company that you, you co-founded and the topics of like personalized contraception, and reproductive health in general. Um, before we get properly started on those topics, um, be always, it's always really helpful to get a bit of background on the guest. And I saw you studied medical sciences at university. A couple of questions first, like what interests you into like a career in medicine? And secondly, like what were the events or experiences that led you to specifically focus on like personalized contraception? Yeah, so you rightly said I, I started my bachelor's in, in medical sciences. Um, I think I was always really interested in, in biomedical research and wasn't really sure whether I wanted to study medicine. So that was really kind of the way for me to figure that out at uni for, for a couple of years before studying university. I always did a lot of volunteer work at hospitals and um, I grew up with quite quite an ill um, grandparent. So I think that really stimulated just the interest in general in into looking at the world of healthcare and care. Um, then starting university, I realized that actually I wasn't fit for the doctor role. I, I really was more interested in kind of the advancement of like the lab work, but then also had a bit of a, a time realizing that I also was very extroverted and I like to manage people and I liked operations. And so the lab work does, didn't really fit that side of my personality. So it was really a journey of just figuring out, okay, coming out of this, what, what would be the best kind of thing to study? After kind of my third year, I, I started to get really interested in genetics and more like personalized research and, and medicine. And so did a bit of did my thesis in epigenetics of antipsychotic drugs. And that sort of led me down this path of doing more and more research um, on precision medicine and kind of where, where the gaps were, where the research was going, where the funding was going. And that was really when it hit me that there was there was a big gap in kind of woman's health and just even the way that we have been doing and recruiting for research for a long time has been excluding a lot of females from trials. And, and this is kind of me entering this world, kind of questioning why, why is this happening? Like, why has this been the, the case? And so I think that just kind of stimulated my, my interest in women's health. 
and also the fact that I lived with five girls at university. So I think the whole topic of contraception just came up over and over again. My friends would come to me because I was the only one that studied anything clinical, medical, and they would ask, oh, what do you think about this method or that method? And it just kind of became like a colloquial conversation topic at the dinner table. And so I found myself doing a lot of research on the topic because I wanted to help my friends. And that's really where kind of the, the main idea sparked in me. Um, and I actually started to make like a spreadsheet. I was like, well, I figured out that this one, this method is better for these symptoms and this one's better for these symptoms. And so after a while, I just kind of had my friends coming to me like, Oh, like what about this one? And what about that one? Or I've tried this one. And so I started to do my own little market research in the, in the kitchen. Um, and this is where kind of the idea of Dharma started. I unfortunately then didn't go into lab work and research in the women's health case healthcare space, I actually went into social care. So a completely different industry where I was working kind of with social social workers and care workers to help people that needed kind of care um, in their homes, domiciliary care. And I worked there for like two years. And that was then when I realized that I was really, I loved the operations. I loved fixing and working on really difficult problems with really low resources and um, how I kind of yeah, I, I like to thrive in those environments. Um, I found it challenging and I also was just super passionate about helping people. I, so I guess that then led me to realize, okay, I need to do something that kind of fits the two and decided to, to go study in business school for a year, innovation, entrepreneurship and management at Imperial. I wanted to see, you know, what I could get out of the, the quick, fast paced innovation entrepreneurship world and, and kind of bridge it with my background in in both social care and care and also medical sciences. And that eventually led me to um, to working at Merck, Merck's Innovation Center, where I worked with very early stage tech and health tech startups um, and started to explore this idea of, okay, how do you get from idea to IP to commercialization to funding um, very early kind of high-risk projects? And at the same time, you know, used my colleagues at, from, um, from Merg as really a sounding board to the idea of Dharma. Do you think this could work? You know, is there, how, how can the business model or something like this work? And that was really the time that I, I had to kind of curate and, and train, I guess, my understanding of the health tech industry, the digital health, and also the genetic side um, before taking, yeah, I guess the, the step to, to entrepreneurship fully. Um, still at quite a young age, but I think it was really to do with, um, with the timing of things. It was either I continued my career, you know, within pharma or industry or where I just, yeah, took the risk in, in something that I really believed in and thought could make a really big impact. So, so here we are. Um, and then really finding the right people to do it with. So I stress this a lot. Um, but I met Paulina when I was in business school, she was in medical school and, I wasn't looking for a co-founder. I wasn't looking to start a business, but kind of meeting the right people in the right time who shared the same passion as me kind of fostered that journey. And Paulina was working on a contraception project on her own from the clinical angle. And that's really how, how we then decided, Hey, do you, do you want to do this crazy thing where, you know, we, we kind of leave, leave the paths that we thought we were always gonna, gonna do and um, take a risk for something that we both believed in. And, and we did. So we're now, 
nearly nearly two years into the business and yeah and it's going <laughs> nice yeah thank you for sharing it's such a cool journey it seems like such a natural evolution of how it's all happened and come together in the end and like the perfect breeding ground of like all these different experiences coming together to, to mean that actually dharma health was probably like the perfect cultivation of everything um but also sounds like very self-aware and very quick to decide on when something isn't quite right or like not what you want to do which is a real skill to have i think too many people spend too long doing stuff that they're not happy with and and, and don't actually think quick enough to to move on. Um, that I know you just kind of teed up perfectly into the journey into Dharma Health. Before we talk about Dharma Health, just wanted to take a step back and actually talk a bit more about kind of contraception and reproductive health as like general topics. Um, starting with contraception, um, I guess, first of all, like, could you just explain some of the reasons why someone may take contraception? Because I think naturally, especially as, as a man, like, I, I would you kind of assume it's birth control is the only reason, but actually doing my research, I realize there's more to it than that. So could you just explain some of the different reasons why you may be given or take contraception? Yeah, absolutely, Craig. So this is something that not a lot of people know if they're not a contraceptive user, but contraception is obviously um, in the majority of its forms, they're exogenous hormones that can also be used to treat hormonal conditions or treat um, any reproductive health symptoms. So this could include things like heavy bleeding. As a woman, you may start your periods at 14, 15, and actually every time you bleed um, on a monthly basis, if you know you do bleed on a monthly basis, you, you have debilitating kind of pain or very heavy amounts of blood coming out every month. And so contraception can be used to kind of regulate that. It can help women and people assigned female at birth basically manage those symptoms. They're also used to treat certain conditions such as PCOS and endometriosis, which I think people are now more and more aware of, that these are conditions that um, affect women in, in many debilitating ways. And they can also be used to treat things like acne, hormonal acne. So a lot of women may have um, a lot of hormonal acne growing up. And so you actually go to your dermatologist and the dermatologist will put you on the pill because of that. And that's kind of what happened with with me. I, I had a little bit of hormonal acne and the the dermatologist prescribed me a form of contraception instead of, I guess, like a topical antibiotic or cream. And this kind of shook me a little bit because I was like, okay, fine. You know, you, you take the doctor's kind of opinion at face value at that age and you start taking it. And then I had my own experiences with that and sort of hated um, what it did to my body. It just wasn't a good fit for me. And that kind of got me again, really looking into, into the case. So a lot of women at a very young age start because of other reasons. And obviously birth control is the main, um, the main reason for, for a lot of people. But it's not it's not the sole um, reason. And so this is why we have a lot of people in our society on contraception and birth control options, because it's it's not simply yeah to prevent a pregnancy. You also do need to have contraception in a lot of countries prescribed to you after you've given birth, because there's a risk um, after you've you've given birth that you should not, you know, conceive in a certain number of months post your pregnancy and post your um, your birth date. So contraception is also used kind of as a prevention there um, and prescribed to, to women after after giving birth. So multiple reasons. Nice. And, and um, again, like everyone probably thinks of the pill when you talk about contraception, but that's only one of like many different forms. Can you, again, just explain a little bit about kind of like different types of contraception that's available and, and like the more commonly used ones? Yes, of course. So in the UK, we have around 13 different categories. Um, so the pills being one of those categories. Um, so we've got the the combined hormonal contraceptive pill. We've got the progesterone only pills, which only has one um, type of hormone. 
We've got then coils and IUDs, IUSs, which are, you may have seen them. They're these T-shaped devices that go inside the the uterine and prevent pregnancy in multiple different ways. Um, We have the copper one, we've got the hormonal one. Then there's methods such as patches, which you actually stick on your skin, implants, which get injected into underneath your arm. And then you've got the barrier methods, um, which you've got some female versions, you've got the rings. So in the UK, you have around um, 70 different brands and formulation options to choose from, which is quite a lot. And these are all uh, under the NHS's, you know, um, listing of, of options available in this country. And then, yeah, 13 different categories. So if you're deciding, you know, what you want, um, it could be very overwhelming, but not even overwhelming for the user. It's also quite overwhelming for the the provider because knowing each and every pro and con side effects, contraindication for all of these methods could be, um, yeah, there's a lot of information for, for one person to to have to memorize and, and know. Yeah. I mean, that's astounding. I didn't realize it was quite that, uh, varies, um, I guess in terms of choice out there. Um, but that kind of leads me into my next question, actually, which is like what the typical typical journey looks like for someone um, looking to take contraception. Because I, I think I, I just chatted to my partner about this actually in the last week, and she said I think she's been through like three or four different pills. She's had the implant at one point. It took quite a while to get one that she felt was like right for her. So I assume like your obviously first step is go to your GP. What what happens from that point onwards, and like what are some of the associated like challenges, Elena? Yeah, so in the UK, there's different options. I think the most common one is you go to the GP, you speak about kind of why, why you're looking to take formal contraception. Um, and then the GP could either refer you to a specialist if there is an underlying condition there that they cannot um, prescribe and they don't feel comfortable prescribing, or they would be able to give you a prescription then and there. In some cases, so if you need to get an IUD or you need to get an implant, you will need to let you know the GP, the surgery, the sexual health clinic know because they need to prepare the device. They need to have it ready for the for the consultation. So sometimes it's not as easy as just going and getting it. You then need to return. In the UK, there's actually quite a lot of waiting lists for some of these methods. So um, you do need to, unfortunately, sometimes take another method in the interim if you know birth control is something that you're looking for. And there's now also the option to to have um, some of these. So the progesterone only pills, some of these are now over the counter, so you can get them at the pharmacy level, which has been, you know, a a new kind of um, new thing that women can do in order to, I guess, also the the government and the UK have supported to make accessibility a little bit more easy. And these are lower risk drugs. You can also then go to the gynecologist directly um, if you are looking for a specialist. But I guess it's not, it's not so simple, right? There's different ways to get contraception and you can go to the sexual health clinic, you can go to the GP and depending on really how you take the route and who you speak to first will really have an impact on what you probably end up taking. And this, yeah, also varies country by country. In some cases you, you can get certain methods, you can pay for them as well. So now telehealth and telepharmacy, a woman could go online and order some of these um, brands that may not be available um, through the NHS um, at first instance, but you would need to pay out of pocket for these. And these are maybe newer generation drugs, got more options, and you always have to speak to, to a doctor, a nurse practitioner um, to be able to get these prescribed but yeah, it's, it's, again, it's a bit of a minefield <laughs> and a bit overwhelming. And, and when someone says that they've um, you know, tried, tried a certain pill and it's not working for them, what, 
when they say not working, like what, what are some of the side effects, like common side effects versus some of the more extreme things that can be consequences of being prescribed, like something that just isn't suitable for you? Yeah, this is where it gets tricky because obviously starting a new form of anything really takes an adjustment period, um, especially with drugs. Um, and especially when we're talking about exogenous hormones, hormones are everywhere in our body. They're basically the little soldiers that control the majority of our biological processes. The majority of cases and what we hear from women um, as the main side effects that impact them and make them stop taking contraception are things like heavy bleeding. Um, so they start a method and they just stop, they don't stop bleeding. So um, instead of having kind of the weekly, I mean, the the monthly bleed, they, they're just constantly spotting and bleeding. And this can be very yeah, painful and, and obviously not something you want to live with. There's migraines and headaches that become a big problem for women. Um, there's also weight gain. So some women actually start gaining weight on hormonal forms of contraception, and this could be um, something that they want to completely avoid. And then there's also a lot of people saying that they experience mental health symptoms, depression, um, low mood, and loss of libido. So these are kind of the the more common um, symptoms and side effects. And then you have the more rare, but very, but more, I guess, extreme, which could be blood clots. And in some cases, women reporting, yeah, blood clot incidents, um, stroke, et cetera, not common at all, but it does, it does still happen. And, and this is why screening through those risks is, is very important. So things like that could be completely avoided. 100%. And I guess it's easy to kind of make the GP or the NHS like the villain here and, and put the kind of fault with, with them. But I, I assume that, you know, everyone knows the NHS is like massively understrained, they're understaffed from their perspective and the challenges they're facing. So I'm sure any GP would generally want go in with the intent of like, I want to you know, serve patients the best possible way, make sure they get access to the, the most suitable kind of um, medication possible or whatever it might be. What, what are the pressures they're under? Like, is it just, they just don't have enough time. They don't have enough data. They don't have, well, it sounds, I was going to say they don't have enough choice, but it sounds like there may be almost too much choice of what they could prescribe. Like what, what are the key challenges from a, like a GP practitioner perspective? Yeah. So multiple, I guess, things to consider here. So GPs again, yes, a low time. Um, I think when it comes to just the resources and the amount of time they have for, for consultations, they will prioritize certain appointments that may be um, a little bit more urgent or again if the woman has to come back two or three times because they need to be informed that is what's costing a lot of back and forth and and I guess inefficiencies in the system so we actually interviewed um, over 200 OBGYNs gynecologists doctors GPs um, to better understand you know what were the biggest issues on their end and actually um, the all of them said that women coming into the consultation room are not informed of their options. They don't know what they need. And so that the appointment actually ends up being them needing to just educate. Um, and so a lot of the prescribing doesn't even happen <laughs> in that moment because then the woman's like, okay, overwhelmed with information, needs to go back home, needs to consider, goes back, right? So so this is one of the biggest kind of problems that we're seeing right now. And, and that's something that really can be tackled from a different angle, right? Like the GPs and the doctors should not have to um, have the strain of, you know, um, of course, they always have to educate patient empowerment and, you know, get to share decision making. But there's so much more we can do to better educate um, the population and women about their options pre-consultation. Then there's the issue um, with some GPs um, that they actually 
the insertion, these procedures cost them more um, as an appointment. Um, it also takes longer, but they don't actually get compensated in, in, in the way that then they will want to prioritize that sort of consultation. So so if you there is kind of more of the incentive to just give the pills and to give the, the methods that are easy because the appointment isn't then structured around, you know, um, certain um, in taking more time for um, an insertion, for example. And then I think there is just a big gap in the knowledge that we have around, you know, risks of population risk, individual risk. So um, these guidelines are being updated every five, six, seven years. And there has been a lot of research done in the last, you know, five, six, seven years. But obviously these guidelines um, take time to consolidate. And so the GP can only and the doctor can only really prescribe based on what the guidelines say. Um, for safeguarding, for safekeeping, and obviously to follow the processes that exist within the system. So there's just a number of reasons. um, And the fact that one of the biggest challenges that we've experienced with our doctors and our patients is sometimes the medical, the best medical fit. So you as a doctor um, think that this is, you know, the best method for this woman contraindicates what the woman then wants, right? And it's very difficult to find the balance. So it's, it's this risk benefit, but also this personalized fit. You may want something that will help with your heavy bleeding and your and your acne, but you're not willing to have a hormone or you don't want something inserted into your body. So then it really does limit the options for the doctor. Um, and I think that's where the education piece of being able to, to help people get to a shared decision-making um, is super important because you end up with your doctor not getting maybe to the the optimal version because you're not willing to 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 accept that actually maybe these are the methods that would um allow me to get to that end point and so doctors struggle with that especially gps that are not specialists and they're not trained there's not a lot of training um around different contraceptive methods that encourage them to maybe encourage women to take the best forms they're more encouraged to to prescribe what they're comfortable with that makes sense and that's a quite a tricky dynamic to navigate and i guess kind of like from from all the things you're saying the things i'm taking from it is like key themes are like kind of lack of data lack of research lack of education in terms of looking at the root cause of how we've got to this point of like a very broken process and system for both parties the patient and the practitioner does this come back to a bigger problem within reproductive health which i can't remember the, the where i read it but it was like two percent of pub, public fu- publicly funded research we spent on reproductive health versus like men's health. So is this like just what's the a big consequence of that is just the lack of funding over the years and the lack of research been done. So we just don't know. And there's just not enough data out there to share and educate people with. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a big part of it, of course. Um, the fact that, yes, we don't, we don't have a lot of studies being done into um, how different contraceptive methods impact other conditions, longer term outcomes, I think a lot of these studies were were industry funded by pharmaceutical companies and just by by larger players to be able to, of course, bring these products to market. And they've done an amazing job at, you know, helping women use these products, use contraception to manage a lot of symptoms, to space out pregnancies. Their contraception has played a really important role in the in, in society. But I think we now we're now past the fact that it's done its prime role of, you know, contraceptive methods are very effective at preventing pregnancy. But now we're seeing that they actually need to go beyond that. They need to now be methods of medication that women can take and not actually have detrimental, like reduction of quality of life because of the side effects, right? So more studies need to be 
yeah, looking into how do different methods impact different people? Um, can we actually work on better formulations of these contraceptive pills? Because if you look at the stats, as you rightly said, it's, it's quite shocking. Like we, we only do R&D in women's health is, is between four to five percent of general R&D. Um, and contraception is one of those areas where it just gets deprioritized. But it's also a form of medication where you have around 900 million um, people around the world on. So you really have this huge population um, taking something that we have very little idea about. And, and that's what really kind of is quite shocking. But I think as, as you know, now women are speaking up about it. We're hearing more about these side effects and this is then encouraging researchers and industry and the government to actually collect, you know, the data, um, and then do, do more funded research on, on potential pathways and uh, to explain these symptoms and these side effects in more detail. And it sounds like, you know, there's also a huge opportunity to, to innovate a space and uh, it, in some ways, like it's not, it's not a simple fix, but like, it's quite clear what the problems are. And actually like when you, when you kind of figure in like a factor in like a tech startup, there's actually probably quite simple ways to actually solve a lot of these problems, um, around kind of like the patient experience and, and how people are being educated and, and the journey with, with the GP or practitioner, um, which let's come back to Dharma Health then. So, um, Elena, could you explain what Dharma Health does like, um, and how you're helping solve this problem? Yeah, sure. So, at Dharma, we are creating screening tests and screening technology that allows for better, personalized, safer, and more efficient birth control and contraception prescribing. Um, and this is two-way. It, it helps support the, the user, the contraceptive user, better understand what they want, why they're taking the method, really kind of question, um, you know, all these important things that m- make for better contraceptive fit. And also the prescriber to to have at face value any medical contraindications, any um, other drug contraindications, and also um, fit for their patient based on what the patient has said was an important end goal, um, their lifestyle. And uh, right now we do this through, we look at different digital biomarkers and we do um, a screening, a pre-screening before consultation where we collect data on the patient Um quite rigorous data on the patient. And we've got a a medical algorithm that then interprets that um, for the GP, for the prescriber. And we're also, because as you rightly said, there's a big data gap. We're also doing um, more R&D research in this this field. And we're looking at um, genetic differences that could potentially help us better match um, women to contraception. So we look at things like predispositions and risks um, that that could be screened genetically, um, and these are things like blood clot, weight gain, how fast you metabolize hormones and how that could really impact, you know, the type of contraceptive method, but also the delivery system that would be the most efficient for the patient. But again, yeah, we're starting, unfortunately, we're, we're really starting from, from the beginning with, with this research because there's very little, um, research currently available in, in this field for us to have, I guess, um, open source from and, and, you know, taken. So we're, we've really had to recruit for our own studies. Um, we've had to apply for grant funding um, and we've had to work with academics and institutions to be able to actually collect this data and data that would actually be helpful um, for clinical use. Um, so a lot of, a lot of the time there is this data available, but um, we don't actually have the, the, the right questions were never asked. So around symptoms um, around different timestamps and different time points. So we've had to really, start from scratch for a lot of this data generation and data collection as a company. 
A little break from the show. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, the good news is you can. Go and visit www.jobsforgood.io where they only have four good companies on their platform, ranging from social justice to food waste to climate change and much more. You can filter jobs by impact area, preferred way of working, skill sets, and find the perfect company and position for you. So if you do one thing today, check out www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. And to dig into the the kind of screening test part of, of what you do, um, you mentioned like a number of biomarkers. Can you give us some examples of what type of data points you are looking at and, and how you've decided on those? Like I saw you've got quite an extensive board of advisors. Is that where they come into play to make sure that you are asking the right questions to get the right data so you don't fall into you know, what's happened in the past where it's not really stuff you can use for from a clinical perspective? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, um, as kind of the basis of anything, we, we use... Um, we use the guidelines. So we, we use both the UK and the US guidelines, which makes sure that anything from a pathway perspective is, is um, compliant to the way that current practitioners are used to prescribing. But then we automate that because a lot of these things, when you actually go into the GP is um, it's actually just a tree diagram. Um, it's if this, this, if this, that. And, and honestly, the first time I saw one of these was in a sexual health clinic and it was an A4 piece of paper with at least 50 bubbles explaining that of heavy bleeding, of weight gain. Um, and it was, I was like, wow, like has no one automated this? So that was kind of where the, like the basis start started. Um, then yes, absolutely. We work with gynecologists and experts in the field, um, to be able to really identify specific pathways. So, um, specifically looking at if a woman has endometriosis signs, you know, what are the best methods, why, um, and, and really worked rigorously on the scoring around that, um, versus someone who may be a woman who's very athletic and has actually lost her periods because of that. And so what would be the best kind of birth control? So there's all these different pathways, that we've had to really identify and and not only have we used doctors for this, but excuse me, we've used, um, user research and, and, and women to be able to better identify, you know, what are the common endpoints? What are the common problems and barriers that that are existing when prescribing to certain types of personas or, or, or to, to users here? Um, and then we, we have been using our own research, our own symptom research from surveys, from data, from clinical work that we've done. Um, and we look at things like your medical history. So we first want to understand, you know, that there's no medical contraindications so that the recommendations as a minimum are just safe. Um, so you will never be prescribed something that would be contraindicated, but then we look deeper into, um, things like what are your lifestyle goals? You know, what are your end goals? Do you want something to reduce your heavy bleeding? Do you want something for your acne? We need to understand like, why are you taking the method? Um, and then we also need to understand kind of what you've tried in the past. So we, the algorithm can then score certain methods, higher ranking or lower ranked, depending on, you know, what you've tried in the past, how you liked it, how you didn't like it. And then your openness to try new methods. So we realized that actually a lot of women are against maybe trying an IUD, um, but we want to understand why. So is it because you've tried it before and you know it doesn't work for you? Or is it because you heard a horror story or, so, or one of your friends um, who had it? And, and so we then try to, to to support them with the education around it to better help them understand why this method actually may be better if they're willing and they're open to trying it. Um, and in the screening process, we actually collect around 100 different data points on the individual um, and you then as a patient get a very personalized um 
platform, which gives you education around different methods and the pros and cons specific for you and specific for what you told us so that you can make a better decision with when you walk into that um, that appointment with the doctor. Um, and it's not a generic, like here is the pro and con of the contra- combined contraceptive pill that, you know, you can find on, on, um, on most of these, um, on the NHS website or, um, more generic kind of, um, leaflet type information. So this one goes very deep into your personalized, um, based on your personalized goals and your insights, we then give you that information. And on the doctor side, the doctor will then see the medical um, rationale behind each question um, to be able to then, and actually scoring based on percentage match, which which methods are better for them. So the genetic piece comes in um, kind of to be able to contraindicate the, the medical side, because a lot of the time you will only be able to write down what you know and say to the doctor what you know, right? Like I have no risk of blood clot in my family, or I don't have risk of estrogen related cancers in my family. Um, or you may not know, you may just not be aware of these things. So kind of using your genetics and using this pharmacogenomics test just helps to kind of safeguard and add that extra layer of um, personalization so that if you don't know or the doctor doesn't know, you know, we've, we've actually tested for it. We haven't left it to chance. We're not guessing it. And that's really when it becomes really interesting because you can hopefully in time start really then modifying the, the, the hormonal concentrations, the type of hormones, the formulations to a way that is just very suited for the individual. And that's really where personalized and precision medicine is going. Right. And, um, and the reason why we're doing genetics and it's now uh, something that we can incorporate is really because the cost of genetic testing has gone down massively in the last, you know, 10 years. Um, we can, we've done full genome sequencing um, at sub 500 pounds. You can get smaller panels up to, you know, 40 to 50 pounds, um, down to 40 to 50 pounds. So really this is now something that is accessible and, and will become more and more accessible. And that's why it becomes really interesting and fascinating for us and why we're doing the research, because we we really want to be pioneering and, and having the answers for when the market is really open to to the screening technology more broadly. Nice. All super interesting. And, and like going back to kind of the, the screening part, like it's, um, I, I'm still kind of like gobsmacked that it doesn't exist already. Like I randomly booked a, a dentist appointment this morning and um bef- you know as part of that i got sent a text and it was like fill out this form and it was all the similar kind of stuff it was like um you know medication allergies um certain conditions they may or may not have what are you coming for what you're currently experiencing how do you feel about coming to the dentist um took like five minutes to fill out but it, it kind of makes me feel like i'm looking forward to it more because i feel like it's going to be a more informed experience than me sat in that chair and then having to explain it all on the fly um so um that's that's super cool um and then yeah on the second part on the genetic research so how, how does that work like would, would everyone like someone be sent out like a swab to do or like a blood test to do at home to get the genetic sequencing once it gets to that point yeah so at the moment our research has been done with both blood and saliva so we we can do saliva tests um and this to be confirmed at this point but it could either you know the two ways we envision this happening in practice is whether, yeah, you could get a test sent to your home or at point of K, if it is a swab, you could maybe just do it then and there. Um, if you've already come in and you've had that initial consultation, some clinics and gynecologists already take blood um, as part of kind of consultation. So for some patients, they need to do hormone panels or they need to do other tests. And so they can take the blood. Um, the nurse will take the blood at that point. And so we could also do it through the blood um, that is being drawn. This is currently what 
one of our doctors does. So he has the genetic sequencers actually available to him in the same kind of clinic. So when the patient comes in, they do the, the, the blood test and then they, um, they use half of it or a percentage of that to do the genetic testing, the genetic screening. So that's really how we would envision it. Um, I think a huge part of what we're trying to do is create something that is very accessible for people. So I think the, the digital platform is also just part of that and making sure that, you know, there are women in different places that may need to travel very far to get to the clinic. And so being able to have a lot of that pre-screening done um, before the consultation. So you're not wasting their time. You're not wasting the doctor's time. You're, you're actually sure that, you know, you we've done the screener, we've done the test, and we know this woman wants an, an IUD insertion and we can plan for that, right? And she will come in um, next week, um, for, for that appointment. Um, and so a lot of the reason why some people don't end up taking certain methods or they drop out of methods is because there's an accessibility problem. So for the injection, you need to have that replaced, you know, every couple months. And so if, if, you know, someone recommended that you get the injection and then actually you live in a rural town, you know, three hours away from your GP or your, um, or, um, or in the States, for example, we see this a lot. Um, that is not going to be a good method for you. So I think having both the point of care, but also the at home situation is, is really what would be, um, the end goal for us because the biggest problem to tackle as well is an A education, but B accessibility, yeah, no, it reminds me of a conversation I had with Sana Genetics like a, a few weeks back where um, they're solving a similar thing around kind of genetic home testing, but the main thing being about how it can be made accessible and, and inclusive to everyone. Because like you say, you, you forget, you know, not everyone's within 10, 15, 20 minute commute to a to a local GP. So actually make sure that you're building something that is for everybody is, is super key. Um, on the genetic research side, um, can you give some ideas of like some of the programs that you've run and, and like um, some of the, the like successes you've had from those research programs? Yeah, so we were recently part of the Illumina Accelerator program, which um, Illumina being one of the biggest um, genetics, uh, genetic sequencing companies out there. They have um, an accelerator in Cambridge and they have one in, in San Francisco, U.S. And so we were part of the, the last cohort where we were selected to um uh, essentially startups get seven months of lab space and they need to perform, um, some sort of study test and you can use, you can utilize the technology, the staff, the expertise of Illumina. And so we decided to run, um, a study here in the UK, um, utilizing, you know, that sequencing, um, those sequencing capabilities. We recruited for over a thousand women and what we did was we wanted to better understand differences, genetic, core genetic differences, between women who experience severe side effects um, and as a result actually stop taking their contraceptive methods. So that's kind of how we measured severity. Um, again, severity of side effects is very difficult to measure because pain thresholds and you know is is very independent to each individual. Um, but yeah, to the point where someone is willing to stop taking the method because they just can't tolerate it anymore. And then recruited women um, and people who are taking contraception that um, had absolutely no side effects and really um, found these methods very tolerable for them. So these were two very interesting um, population groups that we wanted to investigate. And what we did was we did the full genomic sequencing of both of these groups. And we're now actually in the data analysis stage where we're comparing um, the main the main differences between them from a genetics perspective. Um, and we're already seeing some core differences in regions and areas that, um, you know, we've, we've done research before, but also that we've never seen, you know, popping up before. So this 
is really, really exciting for us because um, even if it's just being able to publish, you know, being able to um, inform people that actually there there is more that we haven't unlocked. Um, and so we're really on this kind of, yeah, mission to unlock the female genome because actually we just don't really know a lot about it from, from a genetic perspective. Um, and in doing so as well, we've collected a lot of what is called phenotypic data, which is more the symptoms, the demographic, um, everything outside of the genetic. And we're comparing as well to better understand. So what were the main side effects that made people completely stop taking the methods? Um, are we noticing differences in age, in demographic, in ethnicity that could, you know, be, um, be new insights? Um, but, um, that was, yeah, that's a main study that we've now, we've got a lot of data around that. And so we were looking for um, also researchers, partnerships for us to be able to kind of um, work around that data and, and, and utilize that data. Um, and in the past, our chief medical advisor, Dr. Aaron Lazarevitz, he's um, basically founded Dharma with us as well um, on the side. And he's been doing pharmacogenomic research for the last um half a decade, really, um, looking specifically at different methods and being able to understand core genetic pharmacogenomic differences. So he, he was able to, to show that, um, there's a variant, um, a genetic variant, um, that actually means that women can gain up to three to four times more weight if they have that genetic variant on the implant. Um, so being able to, just do the test. A very simple, you know, saliva test could actually help you understand whether if you start taking the implant, whether you're you're one of those or you're not, right? And so that's just the beginning of how the the way we're designing this panel looks like. We a have identified what are the main side effects that people want to avoid, and now we're looking to see, you know, what is the genetic um, variance that could really help um, help predict um, better predict that in combination with everything else, right? Because genetics won't give you the, the answer always it's in combination with with also um your medical history and, and all these other variables and factors and external factors that we need to consider um but it's really a starting point to just better understand and maybe potentially you know create more tailored treatments for people um and a population that actually just doesn't um doesn't tolerate these hormones at all so that's really um really where the the genetic side becomes really exciting and the genetic research we're doing is can help and will help, you know, um, other areas of women's health, such as hormone replacement therapy and menopause, because essentially the contraceptives and the, and the hormone replacement therapy drugs are very similar from a compound perspective. They're just different dosages. And so being able to understand genetically from a very early age, actually I have, you know, these predispositions doesn't only help a woman when she's picking her contraception for the first time, it will, these insights will help her make decisions throughout her reproductive life when she goes into her fertility journey and then her uh, menopause journey. And that's really why genetics is so important because it's your core um, instructions, right? And, and, and so be just being able to understand and know that is very empowering because it's, it's something that women just, we, we lack, we lack knowledge of our reproductive health as a society, um, and we really want to try and change that as, as much as possible. 
Oh, it's, it's very cool. And, and like you said, it sounds like you're really just scratching the surface of, of like the data and the insights you'll be able to draw as you carry on. And um, that was one of the questions which you just answered, which was like the ability to actually use some of this data and research for other areas within reproductive health. Because as we talked about earlier, like there's just been lack of research, lack of data for a number of years now, which which you've just said, like, absolutely, this is stuff that can be applied to other areas as well, not just around kind of like contraceptive health. Next, obviously, I know from chatting with you previously that um, a very exciting time for the business in terms of like just finalizing like your go-to-market strategy. Um, my question was going to be around kind of like timelines. Like, when do you hope to be like revenue generating? Like, is that going to happen this year? Or is that like a next year milestone? Yeah. So um, early next year to mid next year is really really the goal for the company. Um, we we work with basically providers. We we sell to providers, to prescribers, to clinics. Um, and we license the platform so that they can use it to their, with their patients. Um, and so now it's, yeah, really an exciting time for us where we're starting to, we're now ready to go out there. We're ready to, to start putting the platform into different settings, um, after basically two years of work on, on the back end of this algorithm and this platform, um, and the research that we've been collecting and the data we've been collecting. So yeah, I think next year is really, really the year that we, we're, um, we'll be commercializing fully because as you know, there's obviously just medical regulation hurdles and just making sure that everything is safe and before you put it into the hands of patients. So um, not only have we had to start from scratch <laughs> and collect a lot of data to be able to really get to, to a solid grounding, but then also you you operate in a regulated market. So for us, the, the main thing is patient safety and making sure that um you know, anything we're putting out there is, is, um, is going to achieve the goal that it does. And, and so we, we've taken a lot of steps to safeguard and make sure that, um, everything we're putting out there is, is, is ready. And so, um, yeah. And the genetics, well, um, the data analysis is happening this year. So we, we hope to be able to, yeah, kind of publish slash update the community from with any, insights um from that as well in, in the short term um but already as i mentioned really exciting stuff that's coming through and and we're open to any partnerships as well with people that are interested in, in working with us whether it's in data collection or it's in, in doing research so um we work with several phd students already um and we continue um we will continue kind of that journey to make sure that we're also encouraging academia uh, and researchers to go into this field and to to want to keep investigating the the female body um, because it's it's a very interesting it's a very interesting world um, to look into. So yeah, awesome, very exciting. Twelve months coming up for you guys then. Yeah, um, <laughs> and and I guess like something you've touched on a few times here is um, you know I, I think it's kind of it's quite common within health techs is um, you know the the need to have like a certain amount of upfront investment to allow you to go and do the research build the product, do all the right testing, make sure you re- meet all the regulations. You know, it's, it's a sector where typically it's like a longer lead time to get to market. Um, can you share a bit? I know you talked about kind of grant, like grants earlier, like how much funding have you had today? Where, where's that come from? And, and when you do speak to investors, like is that a case you just have to be very careful of, of, you know, who you sign up to work with or be invested in by, and they understand the model and the fact that this is going to be a longer lead time than other businesses, say, I don't know, e-commerce or whatever, consumer businesses, whatever it might be. Yeah, no, great question. And I think it's um, it's something that we're also figuring out what is kind of the, the best um, the best route for companies like ours, A, in the women's healthcare space, and then B, a mix between 
digital and biotech, um, which is kind of this like tech bio um, in between. So there's, um, there's multiple angles that we we've kind of taken. And, um, I think the first one was really the fact that, um, a lot of the, the, the business came from a lot of pre-existing research, um, from Dr. Aaron Lazaritz and, and, and his kind of lab. Um, so knowing that there was a basis, a fundamental, um, basis of research, um, and someone who had already been looking at this was a huge stepping stone. So I reached out to Aaron three years ago, I think, because I was actually interested in doing PhD in that space. And so I reached out being like, Hey, I'm so interested in this new clinical trial that you recruited for. Um, and he was recruiting for a new one at the time with, uh, I think it was 900 women, um, so we started talking and I started realizing that actually he's an Obzangaini. So I, I, I asked him, do you think, you know, the research that you're doing could be um, translated into your point of care, you know, into your, uh, into your clinic. And he was like, absolutely. But, you know, we need more research, we need more funding. And so then I guess it kind of s- switched for me. And I, I just then thought, well, instead of doing a PhD and taking five years to potentially, you know, increment the amount of findings by a little bit, um, why don't I then kind of look for funding, look for opportunities and look for alternative options that we could bring something like this to market faster. And that's then when Paulina and I started thinking about this digital platform and, and how we could through that collect data. So, um, in, 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 in a faster way than through academia, um, but B also become a bit more commercially attractive for investment because we would have already a tool, a platform that would be able to provide value, um, in the next two, three years versus the next five. Um, and so we took, um, we took kind of that route of we're, we're doing grant funding. Um, we received grant funding, um, from the UK and from the U S to do a lot of, to basically put more money into Aaron's lab, but also into the research that we're doing. Um, and then the Illumin accelerator program basically provided, a huge chunk of data generation in a way that is, um, it's not through grant funding. It's kind of, it's not also private investment. It's through an accelerator that, um, that does give you that financial, um, capital to be able to execute on these, on these more commercially minded, um, studies. Um, and so last year we raised a pre-seed round from angel investors and these, this has been actually doctors in the field, people that understand and believe in kind of the technology in the social impact of what we're doing. Um, and we're now preparing actually for our seed round end of this year, where we will, um, bring institutional investment in to be able to scale up the product that we've built and then also really start kind of bringing the, the genetic product to market with, with that capital, um, but I think, yeah, I tell a lot of founders there's different ways to kind of generate this um, this data early on, whether it's through the tech that you build, um, real world data, um, but also grant funding or the combination of the two. And yeah, it has been difficult, I, I have to say, because in, in women's health, again, you need to have a certain level of to raise a large amount of capital. You need to have a large amount of evidence. And because we don't have that, we need to then generate that. And because we need money to generate that, it just kind of, it's like one step forward, two steps back sometimes. But I think there is now, it's very, through, through I think, the COVID situation, I think it's become um, just kind of investing in, in, in startups um, that have social impact. They're trying to bring um, digital technologies into the system that are trying to support with these inefficiencies has become, and also female founder 
um, investment has become a lot easier to, to obtain. Um, so we are kind of lucky to have started Dharma in these last two years because we've kind of been able to learn from, from the market dynamics. We've also been able to learn from, you know, the, I guess, OGs of the femtech space, you know, the problems they've had with the data, with the, with the, like what went well, what didn't, and really try to kind of, um, utilize those learnings to be able to, um, create better partnerships or, um, and really kind of get the capital we think will be helpful for our business model. Um, and I think fundamentally femtech is needs to, we need an ecosystem to survive, um, because as, as standalone businesses, it's, um, right now the, the amount of data in the market is just still in its infancy. And so we really need an ecosystem, um, to survive and to, and to grow. Um, and that's really what we, um, what we've been seeing, what we've been trying to do through, through these large partnerships with like Illumina and, and institutions, Imperial has supported us, um, et cetera. So, um, yeah, that's been our journey. Awesome. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that and really insightful and um, sounds like it's um, worked out again, like in the best way in terms of like where the money's come from at which points and, and like the healthy pressures that come with those where sometimes if you go the VC route too soon, then it can it can negatively impact like the direction and, and like pressures on the business. So um, sounds like it's all working out so far. Um, as we've only got, I guess, like a few questions left, um, wanting to chat a little bit, Elena, just about your personal journey, because this is, although you've worked with early stage startups and ventures previously, this is your first time founding a business. Um, and I still think we're in a place where kind of entrepreneurism, startups, being a founder is still kind of over romanticized sometimes. So I just wonder if you could give like a really brutal, honest view of like what it's like being um, uh, an early stage startup founder. Like what are the emotions you're typically, you know, dealing with on a, on a day-to-day week-to-week basis? <laughs> um, I mean, it's a crazy journey. I think I, I never wanted to be a founder. I never thought this was something that I was interested in. And it kind of, um, as I kind of explained, I, I, it just got to the point where, um, I was fixing an issue for myself and my friends and then realized, you know, there was a bigger issue. And so, um, I think it it was more of a personality thing. I've always been someone who's like, if well, if no one else is doing it, why not me? Sort of mindset, and and, and it did really get to that point with with Dharma Health, where I was like, I think now's the perfect time. Um, if, and and just not having the fear of failure, um, I think has really helped. Um, I'm in general quite an optimist. Um, and so maybe that young naivety <laughs> helps you get, um, helps you get far sometimes. Um, because there is, the reality is that it's, it's a, it's a very difficult journey and it's a journey that you, you embark and you just can't like, you know, get off. Um, you're, once you've raised capital, once you've started doing the research, once you've started building a team, you know, every, you have every step of the way, um, you become more responsible for something. And so the response, the the level of responsibility just increases. Um, and you just have to kind of sustain, you know, that strength to be able to, to, to get, (laughs) to get through. And, um, I think it's been, it's been one of the hardest things, honestly, but it's also been just one of the most wonderful things. I don't think I could have chosen a different career path that would have taught me so much so fast. Um, and just with such diversity, um, and, um, but yeah, it's definitely something that is very, it's very difficult to manage. Uh, and so you really need to like, 
I think you need to really take a step back and, and question whether this is the lifestyle for you. I think being young has helped in the sense that, you know, I can pick up and go and live in a different country if I need to, if the business takes me there. And, um, and I have that flexibility in my day. Right. And so, um, I really admire founders that have families and children. And I'm like, I, I can't even, man, you know, barely manage myself in the startup, yet alone another family and another person and another human being. But um, I think the most important thing has been finding the right people. And I, and I said that before, but, you know, the fact that I found um, a co-founder that is so aligned, um, that is there and supports, you know, every decision um, that we think quite differently and we can bounce ideas back and forth um, with each other is, is fundamental. Um, and then really the moment you start hiring and and the people, the advisors, the investors that you have around you, um, I think again, it's like building that environment around you to help you succeed because you just can't do it alone. Like there's just no way. Um, and I've noticed that, you know, the, the people around you is, is, is really the fundamental, um, the fundamental strength that, you know, keeps me going. And, and also knowing that, you know, you're making an impact, I think, um, also keeps me going. The fact that, you know, the, you work so hard for so long and then you get some feedback from, from someone saying, oh my God, you know, just, um, what you're doing is, 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 has helped me so much, or, you know, this is going to change my life or, um, so admirable that you you're doing this. And I think that also, um, that end point and knowing that you can make an, an impact in people's lives is, is, um, I think what then also <laughs> fundamentally, um, keeps me going. Um, but yeah, a lot of late nights, not sleeping, early early mornings working, you know, figuring out, making mistakes. But I think you just have to take it with a pinch, like, you know, with a with positive um, and a pinch of salt sometimes and say, right, like, um, if I failed, at least I failed quickly. And then, you know, and, and now I've learned and now I'm going to do it differently and fundamentally Um yeah, it's, it's quite a, I don't know how to describe it, but it's quite a journey, I think. And everyone's is so different. Um, so yeah, but, um, would never, would never regret this choice at all, uh, <laughs> because of, of everything that I'm learning and doing, um, and the people I'm meeting along the way. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Very honest appraisal. And I, I think the key thing, uh, which you started out with was like, it just has to be something that like deep down you genuinely really care about and they're happy to commit like a huge chunk of your, your life and time to, because if it's not, you'll quickly become disillusioned or fall out of love with it. So it has to be something you'd like know that it, it kind of yeah, <laughs> strikes a chord at your core or something. So, you know, that when it gets really tough, like you've got a reason to keep going. Um, Last question I'm going to ask is, um, well, actually, and I meant to bring it up sooner, but um, obviously huge, um, huge thing fairly recently was the feature on Davina McCall's documentary, uh, The Pill Revolution, um, which was amazing because Dharma Health and yourself got like a, a decent spotlight there w- within the program. Um, I just wonder if you could share a bit about kind of one, you know, how it came about, how you managed to get onto the program, two, what it was like filming and meeting Davina McCall, and three, like what impact that's had, if that's generally within the space or specifically on Dharma Health. Yeah. So, um, yeah, really exciting. So just to give a bit more context, we, it was, um, a documentary on, on the pill called the pill revolution available on channel four for anyone who wants to watch. Um, and it really, Damina McCall has been doing these menopause, um, awareness kind of campaigns and documentaries for a while now. And so she, she then transitioned and kind of wanted to, to support, um, 
her daughters and, and look more into um, the contraception space for, for the, the younger generation. And we, um, I think we were contacted through Imperial. So through the Enterprise Lab, I think Channel 4 reached out or the producers reached out to Channel um, to Imperial um, to speak to us. Um, so I think the connection was through that. Um, I think, yeah, the Imperial Network for us is really, really supported and helped because we... Um, we've had features and we've won the summer accelerator program and little things like that, that have really just gotten, you know, our voice out there. And I think that's actually probably how they, they found us, which was amazing. Um, there, we actually spent a whole day in the lab recording, um, the whole process. <laughs> and then, um, of course, because you need to get, um, you only get your small cut. <laughs> it ended up being just me and none of the other team members, which spent the whole day there with me as well. And, and, and the very cool kind of lab process and the aluminum machines, like opening and closing in slow-mo. Um, but I mean, hopefully we can, we, we can get that, um, that footage at some point, maybe perhaps, and I can share it with the world. Um, and it was amazing. I mean, Davina was very down to us. She was, she was incredible. Um, the funny thing is, and we have to admit, like we're, we're actually a team that is not very UK. Um, but like we're not from the UK originally. So we only, so the main, um, our tech lead, Will, he, he was the only, um, born and bred Englishman in the team. And he was really the only one who knew, uh, and fanned Davina. <laughs> um, and it was only until we really started uh. to look at all these programs and know who she was. that we were like, Oh wow. She's like a big <laughs> deal. <laughs> Um, and, um, but that's just, I grew up in, you know, in Amsterdam, Paulina grew up in, in, in Poland. So we didn't have, you know, Davina on TV growing up. <laughs> um, so that was really funny because when we were around walking around the Illumina, um, cafeteria for lunch, everyone was like, oh my God, is that Davina McCall? And we were just kind of chilling, like with her and you know not thinking much of it <laughs> and then we realized like wow she's just like everyone loves her in this country <laughs> and, and and rightly so um so yeah I think that helped kind of the interaction with me and her to be honest because it was um it was just like speaking to to another human being <laughs> um and and she's been wonderful she's really been um very helpful in trying to get the message across in championing Dhamma and championing women's health research and through that, we've actually been in touch with several researchers and clinics and um, and women signing up to kind of the newsletter of the platform. Um, um, so we're really excited to kind of follow through the momentum of all of that and um, and to continue to see which partnerships we we kind of um, yeah continue to to work on. Um, but the main thing has been really like the academics and the doctors reaching out. Um, wanting to to help and to support and to kind of do that bit um, in in kind of advancing the the knowledge and the the data and the understanding of, of contraception um, prescribing, so um, it was amazing and yeah really grateful for that. So thank you, Davina and Channel Four. <laughs> oh, I'd love to think that Davina's listened to my podcast, <laughs> but I'm not sure that would be the case. Um, what I'll do is I will in the show notes along with like your website and um, your profile, Lena. I'll, I'll also put a link to the Channel Four documentary so people can check that out as well. Um, and I'll put the timestamp for for you where you're specifically in it as well. Um, cool. Well, I think that's probably time to wrap things up. So. Elena, it's been an absolute pleasure. Like I've learned tons and um, really excited 
for you and the team for like the next year and all the things you're going to achieve. So um, yeah, can't wait. Um, in terms of people wanting to find out more about um, what you're doing at Dharma Health or would like, like just following you on social media, like where's the best place where you're most active? Yeah, I think you, Craig. So the we have a newsletter which pretty much um if you're interested if women are interested in participating in women's health research or getting you know good um good updates on any novel insights on the contraception space or reproductive health um go on our website and sign up to to the main newsletter which then um p- puts you through to the the main platform as well and then instagram for more casual you know info on different methods different events going on in london different things that we think would be interesting for you um and we're not very active on twitter but you can follow us on twitter as well <laughs> if you're an academic cool well as i said thanks again and um, i'm sure i'll catch you soon thanks lena thank you craig thanks for having me that's it for today's episode thanks for listening and if you haven't done so already please subscribe and leave a review better yet tell a friend about the show The more people we can get involved, the more hope we have for making the world a better place. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril Al-Sahami and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.